From Revenue Rhino, I'm Brad Hammond, and this is the Lifelong Customer Podcast. Welcome to the Lifelong Customer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hammond, and today I have Pedro from Innovent. Pedro, it's really nice to have you on. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brad. Absolutely. I'm really excited for today's discussion. So, Pedro, to kick us off, can you tell me a bit about yourself? So, who you are, as well as your company, and who you guys are, and what you're doing, and all that. Yeah, so in event, we are a in-person, face-to-face, virtual and hybrid event software company. So we help our clients to run basically meetings. So they can meet online, in person. Sometimes we host events live from the International Space Station. Sometimes we host events within companies to train them. So it's a software that allows you to meet these across different regions and different types of events. Wow, that's awesome. So International Space Station events. That's that's quite amazing. So very cool. There are so many things that you see that are private that customers are using the software for. Events are really cool because you think about them and you think about big shows, festivals, or concerts, but actually the private companies, they're hosting some amazing experiences as well. And everything is usually very restrict and they need to communicate that. But from the parliament up to other uh, streams, all that we have to do is find ways to connect people formally through a system. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. So what's your story? How did you get into this? And how, like, what's the story of building this company and all that? What led you here? Yeah, I think so. We started in event out of college. We didn't have something better to do or just let's find something to fill out our time and maybe we can make a little bit of money. So that was the goal at the time. But it turns out that after you have building something that you are working through those steps that you actually have a software, it, it just gets into the process of actually let's build something together. We started going to all these trade shows, all to these conferences, and we found customers and we just let's raise capital, let's form a company and grow this. So I think the feedback from clients really helps. And also the people that we work with being able to help them and grow, that's really key for us as well. I love that. And Hey, based on our conversation earlier, you're telling me you guys have gone through Y Combinator and you're, you've been quite successful in building this company. I'd I love to hear the story of maybe that, and then we'll get into some of what's what you've done to grow things and make it successful. All that. But tell me that story. That was really interesting. Yeah, I think success is relative. Sometimes you see something that is the best version of someone, but it's actually there are so many problems underneath that you're not sharing. There is a positive culture that we got to be able to maintain. And that's all right. That's what we have seen. I think the progress that we have seen internally from ourselves sometimes is not as clear as I mean, with people, people from college or even like my my parents or even like family members. And they say like, Pedro, you're now so successful. And I'm like, there are, there are a lot of issues going on at any given time. But our journey has been, I think, blessed with key moments of opportunity. And we were able to take those. Y Combinator was one of those. We were able to be on a stage where we're like, let's take advantage of the timing of the market right now, which was pre-pandemic. And we were able to pitch a platform that was going to work virtually and be able to drive this forward. And really, we got accepted into the program and we were able to then build this for our customers worldwide. We still think that we got into Y Combinator by luck. Like we, we actually, when we got received the call, like we, we had this interview. So the interview in person in Mountain View in California. And then after the interview, they call you if you're going to be accepted and they mail you if you're not going to be accepted. 
So it was around, like we had interview in the morning around 4 or 5 p.m. Someone emailed us, was one of the partners, and they said, guys, and we were like, oh, we probably got rejected. We got an email, right? Probably not going to happen. And then we don't believe your numbers. Like they're not, they're so good to be true. So we need additional clarifications. So we sent that. And then two hours later, we received a call most end of the day, like 7 p.m. Pacific. So this was a great day. We started screaming. I still don't think that we can go back to the place that we were in at that day because we screamed so much. They said, you guys stay out of here. I love that. Yeah, that'd be such an exciting day. That's very cool. That's how we built yeah, had that. And we raised some money after that. So it's a really cool program. Yeah. I love that. So walk me through what, what went into kind of starting this company. You went to Y Combinator, you raised some money, and now we've done like events at the International Space Station. What was some of the strategies, tactics? What did that journey look like? Lessons learned, all that stuff. Well, I think the good thing about business is that it's a game that it's always going on. Like you never win or lose it. Like it's a temporary state. If you stop doing what you're doing to win it, like you, you're going to stop getting rewards out of that. The thing that I've learned so much over the last few years is to be really flexible. It's to have the ability to, when you're approaching a problem, understand what the problem is. What's the vision out of that? When we started doing software for our customers, the first thing that we wanted to address was like, are we sorting out the major problems that they have? Is that something of a problem that we can actually get paid and have a profitable business that's going to scale over time? And the thing is that sometimes you don't find a unique thing that you're going to do. Like you try to do one thing on your program, on your business, and that doesn't scale. So you got to try again. And you got to have the resilience to keep pushing forward, even when you do not have the market fit with one thing that you're doing. So we had this on multiple instances where we are creating mobile apps. The mobile apps didn't work. We're creating systems for integrations. The systems, the integrations did not work because they didn't give us the licenses. Sometimes we wanted to charge something or there was not enough money to be made. So that process of always trying something new or always growing the business, understanding what the customers are really looking for. Is key because people are not willing to be convinced, I believe. I think they just want things that are going to serve them in a certain way. It's more for you to discover what those needs are and are you able to deploy what they want? And if it's a good market fit, then you're lucky and you can build a big business out of that. Absolutely. As you went through that problem identification, testing different products, figuring out pricing, how did you identify, is this a big enough problem for them to actually care about, or are they just interested because we're doing cool stuff? Was there some kind of litmus test there? Or how did you know, hey, this really matters. Let's go all in. Cause you only have probably a number of days to execute against an idea before it's like, hey, we got to pivot, try something different. Yeah, no, that's a great thought. We first started in the process of finding problems that we thought were deserve merit based on our own thought process. And then we would approach customers and pitch them this idea. First, we would try to deploy work on that problem that we have identified. And if the client is giving us feedback and growing, then we would increase the development of this and put more resources and everything. Sometimes what happens is that we go to the client and we supply them with something and they say, I don't want to buy the software this way or the price is not right. Or I just want additional things that are not here yet. So you need to improve on those. Then would go and sometimes build on those and still it was not enough. So there was this kind of issues which were like, it's not enough. It's not enough. Like as much as we did, like it was never enough for the client. So then 
we just exclude those. These are categories of problems that we say, like, we've lived this before. We know that these problems are not enough. Like, no matter how much resources we put, the client's always asking for more and trying to pay not something that's going to be worth our time. So we should not explore those unless you have a new idea to deploy that, a new channel, a new technology that's going to allow you to decrease your costs and be able to be profitable on that channel. Yeah, it's interesting. How big of a component was pricing in that? Did you think about that first and foremost or was it like, hey, let's solve this problem and then figure out like if they'll pay later type of thing? I know there's this whole argument in Silicon Valley now of users versus paying customers and profitability and all this stuff. I think that it depends on how much are your base costs. There are products that allow you to be really flexible. Like for example, you need to put a value on the asset that you're developing. Let's say for example, Airbnb, like you basically build a system and then you can actually top this with the assets, which are going to be the homes, right? Or even Uber, which are going to be the cars or something else. And then you're actually accruing value on it. So that makes sense because you're going to be able then at a certain point later to have a, a thing that's going to be worth X and you can sell this or something. There are other industries that do not allow you to build that asset. Like you're building something, but then as soon as that timeline is over, it's a product that expires, there is no asset inventory that you're building. So then you need to calculate the cost to deploy those at that time because they're going to expire later. I can give an example, like for example, let's say you rent hardware, you rent iPads. The iPad after three years is not going to be worth any money at all. So you have to calculate, can I automate the business enough so I can make the payback of two, three active value of the iPad in those years or not? Because in two, three years time, it's not going to be like an asset that's going to appreciate. It's going to be an asset that's going to depreciate. So that's an important measure in your business. Great analogy. Moving on to the next topic here. You guys create a lot of content. You have LinkedIn, YouTube, all this stuff going on. How does that play into what you're doing like in terms of your overarching strategy? I think that you need to create a brand, something that customers trust. I know people talk about branding as a thing, but basically it's about trust. Like you need to think, if I go to a person that's part of my industry, if you are working on specific segmented, segmented audiences and you say your company name to them. Will they recognize you? And what are they going to think about this? So although you always want to be like, no, I know you guys, or I've heard about that. And I think you have a great credibility. That's something that you're striving for. Sometimes, of course, it can be huge companies and they're worth tons of money. But what you don't want to be is just like unknown in the space that you mentioned. And people are like, oh, I never heard of you. Like you, you do not have awareness in the space. So I think what we use the social media for and all the, the communications that we have is just to put awareness out there and people understand that what we can do, what the products that we can offer. Of course, the people are going to, some of them are going to learn more and some of them are going to learn less. But what we don't want is just to be unknown to people, especially the buyers in our space. So that's what we use media for. Yeah. Absolutely. I like that. So warming up the market so that when they are looking for that, solution of the problem or maybe someone from sales reach out it's oh i know of you guys i've seen you i'm familiar versus who are you and i've never heard of you guys exactly and that goes into an interesting space because sometimes you're too biased there is a lot of things that you need to think about because you may be talking one audience and then you don't explore other markets for example we work with a lot of private companies but then government did not know innovate because that was a different segment from private companies so how can you actually go 
and get to be known in a specific segment that you want to target for. So maybe you need to go to specific trade shows, to specific industries, target specific titles or job titles that are different. So that's important for you to map out because there are these multiple silos that you can select from and you need to go into not just one silo. It's, just, it's not one big, like it's actually 30 different silos that you have to target individually. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So what's one thing you wish you would have known when you first became CEO that you know now? It doesn't get easier with time. When you're scaling, actually the problems that you have are going to be more complex and the customer expectations are going to be higher. So it just gets tougher and tougher if you need to deal with bigger problems and you just need to find a way to sort them out and deploy solutions for that. So I would say that you just become more mature and more experienced just because you have bigger problems to solve. Absolutely. If you could go back in time and give your younger self a piece of advice, what would that advice be? I would say be patient you know, and really focus on you. I think there's a lot of social media influences out there saying that you need to buy a car or travel to a Hawaii or something. The key to life is be happy with the simple things. That's where you're really going to be able to achieve happiness in life and have a very happy life as a whole. I love it. And can you describe a time when you had to pivot strategy? How did you go about that? What did it look like? All that stuff. I'd say if you need to pivot, accept reality as soon as possible. Don't dwell on the past that you had something or you were this or whatever. Just accept reality, move on and think about the future. How are you going to create new things? And then what's one piece of advice for your industry as a whole? So think your customer base, the event space, what do you have to say to them in closing remarks? I'll have to say that we are very resilient and like strong heroes. We have been able to go through the pandemic where everyone lost their job as there was no business, approach a new whole way of deploying events and meetings and everything. And now post-pandemic, everything shifting, the economy changing and even the process of layoffs from all of these major companies. And we're still being able there to be ready for the next conference and build something amazing. So the resilience, it's incredible in that space. It's just, it's clear to me. That's why we are on one of the top five stressful jobs is because of the ability to deliver. Love it. Pedro, it's been amazing to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining today and sharing all your insights. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure as well. Absolutely.